0: If you turn to Psalm 119 near the center of your Bible, Psalm 119, um, we are going to be working out of there. And your bulletin is written um, uh, eight verses, Psalm 119. We're going to be looking at the whole of the book. Uh, briefly, and then those eight verses in particular um, near the end. So now hear the word of the Lord to us this morning, starting in in verse uh, 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before the dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words, my eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, O Lord. According to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them Forever. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Lord, do it again. As you've done since Christ has ascended, and even before so. You've taken your word, and when they have been proclaimed, when they've been preached, you have opened people's eyes, you have dropped the scales, you have softened the hearts. Cause us to understand. Cause us to be transformed. Cause us to be made anew. In these next minutes, by your perfect and ever-standing word, Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. There's a John Piper is a pastor and he had this great illustration about um, we often treat God and we feel, us individually as Christians, when we're talking to others, um, like we need to magnify God. We have a microscope idea. A microscope takes something that's very small and magnifies it so that we can see. And often we have this attitude that we're taking something small and minuscule that's not a big part of people's lives and we're trying to magnify it in their lives. He says, when you talk to God, it's nothing like magnifying scope. It's more like a telescope. God is huge. We just don't see it. What we need to help people see is actually how big God is. A telescope takes something that is huge and just helps us actually be able to see it because we're so blinded by it the inability of our own eyesight. Well, Psalm 119 has in part a one purpose to help us see the magnitude of God, how big God is. And this relates to us in the sense that God is all over us. You're covered. God is covering everything. Every prayer request we have, he's got. He's in complete control. And he's covering our prayer requests and all the prayer requests that have been happening across the nation. All over the world. And at the same time, uh, Jesus, by his word, is upholding the universe. He's keeping us 93 million miles away from the sun. Not any closer, not any further, so that we don't burn up. He's upholding everything. And God is not just active in the universe. He's not just active at the uh, uh, molecular level. He's active in your lives. You are here because of God upholding you. God is active in your relationships. God is active in your jobs. God is active in your health. God is active in your marriages, in your schooling. He's active all over the place, constantly. Like the air that is, exists, he's, he's there. He's, he's working. He is working in our lives. Everything is happening according to his will, which is before the foundations, according to his great purposes. He's not thwarted. He's not taken off. Nothing can happen outside of his will. God is that big. What I want to do is illuminate that. We're going to go over some basic big principles in Psalm 119 that will lay a foundation so that we can even rightly understand it, these eight verses. Um, so major truths, some foundational truths, and, and then some practical. First, God is over all things what we're about to read is biblical scripture this is this is truth this is reality whether we see it we feel it or not this is reality god is over all he's in ultimate control psalm 119 verse 89 declares forever O lord your word is firmly fixed in the heavens your faithfulness endures to all generations you have established the earth and it stands fast By your appointment, verse 91, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. He's talking about Jupiter and Pluto and the sun. And in referring them to God, he says, they are your servants. You fix them. The Pacific Ocean is the servant of God. The mountains are the servants of God. He's in control over everything. Uh, this is uh, in Psalm 119, very clear, but it's a biblical witness is everywhere. The Bible starts off with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is uh, not just there, but it's carried over into the New Testament in Matthew 28 before Christ ascends. Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And in Revelations, and we talked about uh, Revelation and as well as 1 Corinthians 15, it talks at the end of time, Christ, after making all of his enemies his footstool, con- conquering them all, is going to take the kingdom, he's going to deliver it to his Father, give it back to them. God is in control over everything, all things are established uh, uh, by God, even. You, yourself, your own body, your own being. Verse 73 says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. You give me understanding. God has even fashioned all the way down to you and I and our eyes and everything. So God has ultimate control. That's the first part that Psalm 119 reiterates to us. But it also pounds into us over and over again. That God not only is in control and created all things, but he communicates excessively, abundantly. Uh, Psalm uh, 119, God uses nine different terms. The psalm uses nine different terms to communicate that God communicates to us. One of the biggest issues in relationships, in works, in churches is a lack of communication. That is never an issue between us and God. We feel like it is, but it's not. There's nine different terms in uh, this psalm. Talk about God communicating. Law, verse 18 says, Open my eyes, O Lord, that uh, I may behold the things of the wondrous things of your law. Verse 4 says, uh, You have commanded your precepts, your precepts, your, what you have declared. Verse 117 says, Hold me up that I may have regard for your statutes, what God has commanded. Uh, verse 36 says, Incline my heart to your testimonies. God has testified in the world, in history, through His Son, through His prophets of Himself. Uh, The psalmist talks about God's promises. Verse 148, the psalmist says, I meditate on your promises. Also, your word. Verse uh, 28 says, Strengthen me according to your word. Uh, Two more, it says, Your ways and your commandments. So all throughout this scripture, you know, we, we could split the hairs on these, and some of them are different. When it says your law, it could be referring to actual commandments, like a legislation that God has, the Ten Commandments. But also the whole Pentateuch, the first five books, was considered the law, the law and the prophets and the, the writings. All these are pointing to God's communication. And how does God communicate to us? How does God communicate through all history? His law, His precepts, His statutes, His testimonies, His promises, His righteous rules, His ways, His commandments, His word. Women have 50,000 words per day, men had 25,000. Men get home at the end of the day and they're exhausted. They have no more words left. God far outweighs all of us put together, He communicates a ton. So, scripture shows that God is in control, that God communicates. Also, this psalm shows that there's opposition to God, the great God, the communicating God. Verse 53 says, The wicked forsake the law. Verse 115 says, There are evildoers in the world. Verse 118 says, Those who go astray from your statutes, O Lord. So, there's evildoers in the world, there's people who are in opposition to God. And we know this, that there's people in opposition against God's people, followers of God. Verse 95 says, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. Verse 87, the psalmist says, they almost made an end of me on earth. Verse 150 says, they draw near to persecute me with evil purposes. So there's opposition in this world that God has made against God and against the followers of God. And this is where I think it touches us, where we... We feel this opposition. Each one of us in our own ways, in our friends, in our um, schools, in our families have felt this. That there is an evil opposition. The influence against God is growing and mounting. Our culture, we're seeing it transformed. And it's become interesting and, and very poignant for the Christian because these biblical ideas of there's only one way are becoming very intolerant. The idea of biblical morality is now viewed as, if you hold to biblical morality, it might be hatred uh, towards people. Men and women roles, you're, you're considered chauvinistic at best and misogynist at, at worst, which means that you hate women. If you hold to biblical man and woman roles, these things are all um, in our culture and against us, and, it, and it's, it's not new. It's in the psalmist culture as well. That there was opposition to God and there's opposition to God's ways. This is what he's doing. And you might be seeing he's painting a picture of the world in which we live in. In which you and I live in, the psalmist lived in, and those before him lived in. That there's opposition outside. But not to be uh, left out, the psalmist also points that there's opposition within. There's personal sin In us. Even just reading this and reading our meditation, you know, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, who walk in his ways, who are steadfast. I don't always love God's word. I don't always love his ways. I'm not always steadfast. I don't always obey his word. We can be thinking, who is this guy? Is this guy like. Uh, and it all throughout here, as and he says, uh, verse 162, he says, I rejoice at your word, like one who finds great spoil. I hate falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Seven times a day, I have, sometimes I don't have, I zero days, no days. I, I stop and I don't praise him. This guy's seven times. So is this guy bragging? No, look look at the whole. He's painting a picture for us. The whole 176 verses ends with the psalmist saying, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Now that's me. That's where I find myself. I've gone astray from this God like a lost sheep. And, And if you pay close attention, he also says in verse 67, halfway through, he says, I go astray. So he's not bragging. He's not listing his accomplishments. Um, even though he has a, a a beautiful love for God's Word, a trust in it, a steadfastness. This is a guy that's not unfamiliar with what Paul's going to write in Romans chapter 3, where Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have sinned and turned aside, and all have become worthless. This guy is painting a picture for us of a very real world and a very real person living in it. It's us. And it's showing a very weighty existence that we live in. One, God is the owner and control of all. Two, God communicates very clearly to us, but there's a great enemy against God. There's a great enemy against us. And we ourselves struggle deeply and personally and regularly and consistently and truly with sin. And there's two more things that this psalm in in, in the 30,000 foot view paint for us. Uh, It's first that the end is coming though. It's not always going to be like this, praise the Lord. It's not always going to be like this. Verse 84, the psalmist is saying, how long must your servant endure? How long am I going to live underneath this umbrella of what we just discussed? When will you judge those who persecute me? In verse 119, he says, all the wicked of the earth you're going to discard them like dross. Like God up there, like you, you, have, you have spoons. And I remember when I was in the Navy and I'd pass the, the captain's kind of room and he had servants in there, these sailors that the government paid to make his space clean. And you'd see them in there polishing the silverware when they'd have big admirals come up, aboard. And they'd get a little dross on and just rubbing it, shining it. And That's the Lord just doing away with it. So he's going to do away with the enemies. One day, it's going to be gone. And this psalmist, he has an expectation. Psalm 174, I long for your salvation. I have a taste of it. I know it's coming. I can't wait for that day. So the end is coming. It's not going to be like this forever. But to completely round it about, give a full picture of our reality, the, the very last thing that this psalm, Kind of displays for us as a groundwork a, a backdrop is that um, it 's a long long road. Life is a long road there 's highs there 's lows, but there 's a lot of time unless you go over it there 's a lot of time it goes on one hundred and seventy six verses in this passage uh, great pastors have uh, sat and tried to work their way through it and, and given up at, after a short while. It's a lot. And it, it's interesting, in the Hebrew, it's it, it's a acrostic. is that how you say that? Yes. It's like it, the whole Hebrew alphabet. They only have 22 letters in their be- uh, alphabet. We have 26. I hope I got that right. Um, but they work all the way through it. And there's a lot of repetition in here. There's a lot of those themes, those five, six themes, pointed over and over again. And you're supposed to get it. You're supposed to get that. It's full breath from A to Z. Life and longing and sin and opposition and God communicating and control because it's a journey. Listen to how he defines himself in which we would do well if we grabbed onto this. Verse 19, he says, I am a sojourner on the earth. Sojourner is a, uh, somebody traveling, somebody moving on. I had a conversation with a friend about another church where uh, they want it all now. They think scripture promises that kingdom uh, in Revelation 21 here now, that Christ is going to rule from here and, and sin and sickness and disease and poverty and injustice is going to be done away with. They have an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology means end times. They they don't realize, and he says, haven't they ever read Hebrews 11? Where it talks about the great heroes of faith, Abraham and Moses and the others, that they never even got their promises fulfilled in this world. Because this world could not fulfill their promises. Scripture speaks about us in here as a sojourner, and elsewhere Peter calls us aliens and pilgrims. We are no different than the uh, exiles coming out of Afghanistan, going into a foreign land. We are in Babylon. We are going to be delivered someday, but for now we sojourn, we're pilgrims, and we're aliens. And it goes on like that. till the end for us. Well, this is the big picture. This is just the background to to help us uh, grasp the eight verses that we're going to briefly look into. Again, God is creator. God greatly communicates to us. There's opposition to God constantly in the world. There's opposition to those who follow God. We are all constantly struggling with sin. There is an end coming, but it's going to be a while before we get there because we're journeying to there. The real lesson is only twofold. Here's the real lesson that these verses, again, uh, verse 145 uh, through 152, give us. And that is, you have to give God in this life, as you're sojourning, your whole heart. You can't hold anything back. You have to give him everything. Uh, Verse 145, the psalmist says, With my whole heart I cry." Answer me, Lord. It's very interesting in verse um, 9. In the beginning, he also talks about uh, my whole heart. I love you with my whole heart. I seek you with my whole heart. God requires whole heart. Now, why is he crying out for God with his whole heart? Why is he crying? Well, it's because of the opposition outside and it's the opposition inside. Inside, and is this a real opposition? Yes, in verse 46, he says, Save me, save me. I was a search and rescue swimmer in the Navy, and you came upon people, and they were destitute, they were going to drown, and they're saying, Save me. And that is our situation, that's the reality of us that we are so lost and we are so bound for destruction and judgment that we need saving. And that saving is available to us when we seek God with all of our heart. If it's that syrup, if it's life-determining, doesn't it deserve our whole heart? If that's what's on the stake. Uh, this guy knows that, he has learned throughout life, as many of us have but constantly forget, that money cannot save us. That community, as sweet as it is, cannot save us. That the government certainly is not going to save us. That our own strength, as time goes on, saves us even less and less and less. This guy realizes that God is over all. God is in control of all. And he knows the scriptures and he understands the scripture teaching that says, unless God builds a house... Those who labor in it, those who bring the nails, bring the wood, make the plans, they build in vain. It will fall like a Haitian structure. And unless God guards the city, those who watch, those who walk back and forth and keep their eye peered, they're watching in vain before the whole city may be given over. This guy realizes that it's all in God, and so what he does is he gives God his whole heart. I had a conversation recently with a man who... uh, had a loved one pass, and this man is a, somebody who is not giving themselves to the Lord, uh, f- familiar with Christianity and such. This person was a believer. Therefore, they said to me, I'm choosing like this. if it, In one hand, if I say there is no God and I don't care about Him, there's no way I'll get to see this person I love in heaven. In the other hand, if I do as the Bible says and just say, you know, um, whoever confesses, what we read, whoever confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus died will be saved. He says, I'm going to grab to that one. And if I'm wrong, then whatever. Mm -hmm. He doesn't really care about it. He's not wholehearted. He's just saying, and I even said, well, there's more to that verse. There's discipleship. There's true love. He says, well, I don't want discipleship. I'm just going to do what that verse says. Unless you love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul... You don't have him. You don't have him, for that's idolatry. God sent Jesus to die. There is forgiveness. There is help. There is promise of a deliverance out of Egypt, out of bondage. But it's for those who love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Acknowledge him as God. So you have to give God your whole heart. It's a great time for us to ask, have we given God our whole heart? our whole heart, and all of our dependence for our salvation? Or is it still in government? Is it still in our savings? Is it still in our own wisdom? Do we really think that we are the masters of our own domain? Just give it time. Don't even give it time. Look back clearly. Ask your spouse. Ask your kids. Ask your friends how well of a master you are. And you'll see you're not that good, and you'll also see how great God has been to you in the back, because he is the perfect master. So first, um, we need to see in this passage, he shows us that we need to give God all our heart. And second, uh, and this is the point of this passage. In the center of the Bible, the longest chapter in the Bible, teaches us, in this world that we live in, you have to go back to the Word of God over and over and over and over and over that is how he sustains us that is how we live um, I got this verse one of the challenges of kind of guest preaching is you, you're not working through a book and I, I, I don't like to preach old things because it's just not new you in your mind and so I was just, just in my personal study I came across verse 147 it says I rise before the dawn and cry for help I hope in your words and I had a evening uh, a morning where I woke up super early just Anxious with work and kids and family, and and I went to the Word hesitantly, like, is this really going to help? <laughs> and yes, after time, it did. It helped, and I loved it. He said, "My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. If you ever are awake and afraid, and uh, you're not the first Christian to have fear." This guy went to the Word uh, before the watch of the night. And he says, that may meditate on your promises. And I was thinking, this is a psalmist. What promises did he have? And, well, he had the whole law, the Pentateuch, the first five books and some history books. And I was thinking, he probably was turning to, and this is what what I did. Uh, I just happened to turn to Deuteronomy and just trying to think uh, right before they went into the promised land. And listen to this. So this Solomon who's uh, crying out in the middle of the night, living in this sojourning, challenging world, he's fearful, anxious, he knows God is his only help, he's not feeling it though, he doesn't see God in the moment, but he starts to meditate on his promises. Uh, I, he could have come upon Deuteronomy chapter 7, when Moses is talking to the people and he says, when I bring you into the promised land, that you are entering to take possession of it. And when I clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezrites, the Hivites, the Jebusites—seven nations more numerous and mightier than you—and when you know that the Lord your God gave them over to defeat them, devote them to complete destruction. He says, "I am giving you the land." And I just read it. this psalmist who's living in the kingdom of Israel. There is a king. They've got history, decades, kings of history there. And he's fearful. God, are you going to be here tomorrow? Are you going to protect me? And he reads back, before his people even came into the land, that God destroyed seven nations. It's like God saying, I'm going to give you France. I'm going to give you China. I'm going to give you Afghanistan. I'm going to give you Japan. I'm going to give you Australia. And, and and you get an army of 300. I mean, and this guy is living in the promise that God fulfilled. We too need to look like. Can God deliver you from your struggles? Can God deliver you from your anxieties? Look at what He did for Daniel. Look at what He did for the Israelites, bringing them out of Egypt. Look what He did for the Israelites in the desert, raining manna. God's promises are yes, and Amen but we have to go back to them over and over and over and over because like the psalmist, we go astray (coughs) like sheep. We constantly go astray. So we must go back to his word for that's what you see uh, all over here in the scripture. He says over and over again, um, verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. Lord, uh, make open your ways. Help me to understand your statutes. All throughout the scripture, he's praying, God, show me. Not every time I sit down and open the scriptures, nor do you, do we get that aha moment. But we pray that's what God gives. This is his path. This is his word that he uses to do it. He is the master of the world. He is our hope. Um, And finally, he says this. The psalmist says, They who are enemies of you and enemies of me persecute me with evil purposes. They are far far from your law. But in verse 51, after meditating upon his promises, remembering that it is God who is God over all, he says, but you are near, O Lord. You are near. He knows that God is nearer. God is more in control. God is more faithful. God is more steadfast. And God will do what he says. He will do. So the only thing for us to do is to say, do we want to follow this direction for our life? Do we want it just to be inspirational for now? Or do we want it just to spark good intentions? Or from this day forward, are we going to commit ourselves to going back to the Word, back to the Word, back to the Word? Not looking for fresh revelation out there or some inkling on a poster board. Are we going to go back to the Word? Are we going to look back to the promises that he's fulfilled? Are we going to trust in the judgment that's coming, the blessing for us, and the punishment for the the evildoers? I pray that we all will go back to the word. Let us pray. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you are faithful to your promises. You're not a God who has been untested. Uh, For you, we have an entire book, 66 books over a span of 1,500 years written by over 40 different authors that testify of your faithfulness and of your justice and of your righteousness and of your power. Help us not to doubt. Help us not to be short-sighted. Help us to know that through Jesus Christ we can approach your throne of grace that because of the gospel which declares that he has uh, redeemed us from our sin and our guilt before us by his own sacrifice on the cross that is ours through faith in him, that we can sojourn in this world, not alone, but with a true God, your spirit and your word, knowing that we will arrive at our final destination. Give us, by your Spirit, that confidence in your Word, that commitment to learn it, to meditate upon it, to store it in our hearts, which means memorizing it and having it at our hand. Would you do this for your glory? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.